Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. In this inaugural episode of the Davidson Day School podcast, I will be speaking with Matt Saunders. Matt is an upper school history teacher at Davidson Day. He is also an archaeologist and founder of the American Foreign Academic Research, AFAR. Matt not only operates field schools every summer, but hosts two major conferences each year and publishes a peer-reviewed journal. And I just learned he's in the process of writing a book. Most importantly... Matt is married to the amazing Priscilla Saunders and his father to the incredible young people, Owen and Sophie. Matt, thanks for being here today. Thank you. I read on the American Foreign Academic Research website that you're exposed to the world of discovery and archaeology by your Uncle Russ. Everyone needs an Uncle Russ. What was it about your Uncle Russ and how did he inspire you? Well, my Uncle Russ, he was married to my mother's sister. I was sort of the one family member who was drawn to him. And we were good buddies, and we, we sort of bonded over a common interest of archaeology and dinosaurs as a young age. He always subscribed to, um, like, Archaeology Magazine, Nat Geo, and he would give me his old issues. And b- even before I could read, I remember flipping through those pages and just being fascinated by, uh, you know, old stuff. It's even funny, Russ took me out of fourth grade, he took me out of class to go to Marshall University to see Richard Leakey speak about early man. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I I think he just sort of made it exciting, and I enjoyed just spending time with him, and I think it just sort of built that excitement about the field. And I think I spent my entire life wanting to be an archaeologist, just I kept telling myself all the reasons not to, and finally I just said, you know what, this is what I want to do. Why were you telling yourself not to do it? Um, it wasn't just me, sadly. It was my college advisors. Uh, you know, everybody said, well, you know, it's fun, but you got to get a job. Yeah, I mean, I, I think everyone just, there was such a stigma about certain fields of academia that people are constantly saying, oh, well, you'll never get a job. It's fun. And I finally just said, you're actually fueling me to do this because you say I can't and I want to. It's always great when people tell you you can't do something. Yeah. It's like it's such a great inspiration to do it. And so then you studied New World Archaeology at the University of Kentucky. What is New World Archaeology and why did you choose that particular field? New World Archaeology is simply the archaeology of North and South America, what Europeans would have considered the, the New World in the Age of Discovery. I didn't really pick specifically the Maya, but because University of Kentucky was really heavy, a lot of the professors were doing work in North and South America. A lot of the courses that were offered were New World. In fact, I, I was probably more interested in the Moche or the Inca of South America before I actually had the field opportunity in Belize. And once I went to uh, Belize as a, as a field school student, I fell in love with the Maya. I fell in love with Belize, Central America. I never looked back at that point. And I've never been to Belize just tell me about it as a country when you went there for the first time. Well, I grew up in eastern Kentucky. So being outside of West Virginia, Ohio, or Kentucky was a major culture shock. Belize was beyond a major culture shock. 
you know, Belize is, a, is an amazing country. I, I feel actually more at home in Belize. I know that sounds crazy, but I've had more, you know, I, I've actually had more consistency being in Belize than I have any other location being in Florida, Kentucky, West Virginia. It's just an amazing, welcoming country, very low population. Uh, it was a British colony, so it was comfortable for me as far as language. A lot of North American scholars, English speakers, uh, find it uh, as a great home and an easier w- place to work because of the language. Yeah, just very welcoming, lots of work to be done. You know, I just sort of hit things at the right time. Uh, when I started working down in Belize, they had just gotten some major funding to do some significant work at some major Maya sites, and they were desperate for some individuals. And I was underqualified, but at the same time, they need they were desperate. So I was able to get my foot in the door and work on some really incredible sites early on. And I've worked there since 2000. And aside from the brief hiatus when I got married, and of course, this last summer, I've worked every summer since. And I'm embarrassed by my ignorance around the Maya. Broadly, who were the Mayan? What sort of time frame we're talking about? How did they sort of rise to prominence and do so many amazing things? Yeah, the Maya were probably the most impactful, significant civilization in Central America. At contact, the Spanish encountered mostly the Aztec. They were sort of in power in Central Mexico. The Maya were still there. The Maya never truly collapsed. But as a massive empire, they had sort of dwindled and they were living in the hinterlands. They weren't in the big cities anymore. So the Spanish did encounter the Maya at contact, but it wasn't the same Maya, okay. if that makes sense. And but to fully answer your question, I mean, we're talking about, depending on when you want to call it truly Maya, uh, because we have proto-Maya, classic Maya, you could, you could argue as early as, you know, 1000 B.C., I've worked on many sites, but the one that we work with with the students, the time is it's really early. Mm-hmm. So, and it actually is pretty late. There's actually it almost encapsulates all occupation waves. Not the very latest, but we actually do see evidence of people like the Maya coming back and using it as sort of a shrine. Mm-hmm. Like you would see something you're not directly connected to, but something that impresses you. You knew your ancestors were a part of. And we see little offerings, like uh, little burnt offerings, et cetera. So we do see that really to the latest contact time. But really, as far as early, some of the earliest in all of the Maya, Maya world. It's amazing. So your path to Davidson Day is an amazing one. How did you go from fieldwork in Belize to North Carolina? Okay, so I was already working with pre-collegiate students. And I was teaching high school, which was never really on my, my trajectory. In Florida, is that yes, right? Yep. Yes, I was working at a public school in Florida. I was down there. And to be honest, we had gotten a lot of great attention because no one had ever really, I, I always say no one was crazy enough to try to use high school students in field work. But we had successfully done that. And Archaeology Magazine and the Archaeological Institute of America, which is a, is a big organization, had actually sent correspondence down to write an article and sort of see what we were doing. We were trying to get some some financial support. So they were down this summer, and I think that was the summer of 2009. And just by coincidence, Davidson Day had like a trip 
And it was, uh, I think, organized by Chad Metzler. The head of school was there. Mike Thomas was there at the time. And my boss, who was the director of the Institute of Archaeology for Belize, I mean, he's sort of a big, big deal. He calls me on Friday morning and he says, Matt, uh, I need you to do me a favor. I promised these high school students that I would let them come out to Baking Pot, which was another site. And he said, I forgot it's the long weekend. We're not working today. Do you think you could show them around, let them screen some of your dirt, et cetera? And this was the worst day possible <laughs> because I have Archaeology Magazine on site. I have the AIA representatives. But of course, I'm like, sure, yes. And they come on site. You know, it was a great group of kids. They actually made more photos in the article than my own students, right. uh, ironically. But they came out. It was great. At the end of the day, then head of school, Bonnie Cotter, said, hey, this is really great. You know, can we show you thanks by taking you to dinner, et cetera? That night, literally, she offered me a job and said, I shouldn't tell you this, but I want this program. I want you in the school. What do we have to do? Yeah, I mean, fast forward a year and a half, and we came up, and Priscilla and I, we, it was sort of a lateral move in some ways, but when we saw that our kids could be in school here, that was the deal. We really wanted to see our kids grow up in a school like this, so we and, made that. And how old were the kids at the time? Two and three. Wow. Yeah. So super young. Yeah, they've been here literally their whole lives. And moving into sort of the main section of, of our conversation here is just around the American Foreign Academic Research, which is AFAR. Why did you start the program? I started it with a local bank vice president in Florida, and the financial need was just really great. And I was having to turn away a lot of really great students. So you were working as a high, as a high school teacher, yep. going to Belize in the summer, taking kids, but couldn't afford to do it. Right. They, 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 not all of them could afford to go. Correct. Like the first year I took four kids mm -hmm. and they were kids who could. And I remember from the interest meeting, comparing the interest meeting to those who actually went, I left a lot of really good kids at home and I knew why and it was financial. So yeah, I just reached out to a local businessman, knew nothing about nonprofits and knew nothing about companies. I am a kid myself, <laughs> honestly, and uh, just sort of said, can you help me make this happen? Because I, I don't want to turn my back on kids who deserve to go. And we founded it, and that's really why we did it. It was not for any other reason. We didn't have ideas that we were going to publish journals, run conferences. I mean, all of those things just sort of happened. Everything was very natural. We didn't have specific goals. We just wanted to help kids make that happen. And I'm really proud to say that we still are – providing well, probably on average about $25,000 in support that we still need. So you were heading over there anyway each summer. Then you thought, oh, I'll take some kids and they'll help out. Like how did that evolve? It was essentially me teaching. I, I, I taught anthropology class. And of course, like most teachers, you teach on your experiences. So I would talk about the field school program. I was an instructor in the field school program. And I remember very clearly a, a kid in my class, Tom Wilkie, uh, he says, hey, would it be possible if we did that? And I laughed. I was like, no. And then I thought about it, and I'm thinking, these kids are actually taking a course in anthropology. They have, like, I can teach them the basics. I was a terrible field school student. <laughs> they knew more than me. And I thought, why not? And, you know, fortunately, Dr. Awe gave me an opportunity, and he said, you know, bring a couple kids down. And he said, let's see how it goes. 
And it was one of the most amazing moments of my life when at the end of that session, he spoke to my students and he spoke to me and he said, you guys did an amazing job. And if you can have this caliber of student, uh, he said, I open my arms to all the students that you can bring like this. And at that point, it went from four to 12. And then within probably two or three years, we had as many as 36 kids. And then fast forward again, we have four projects. We're working in four countries. And yeah, but it was just somebody giving us a chance and a kid saying, hey, do you think that's possible? And yeah, we just did it. What I find really inspiring about that is that at that moment, because it hasn't been done before, it's very easy to say, oh, no, we can't do that, right? And so archaeologists have been around a while, like high school students are around a while. Like there's the fact that no one had thought to do that before. Like I just find it really inspiring that at that moment, instead of you saying, oh, no, that hasn't been done before, you're like, oh, hang on, like this could happen. And that seems to sort of be a bit of a, like a pattern with you is just that just because it hasn't been done before doesn't mean it can't be done. Like where does that come from? I'm not sure. I, I I don't really think of myself as a radical or anything. And just just for the record, it's not that pre-collegiate students have not done mm-hmm. field work because it has happened. You know, Merle Green Robertson, who is a, a famous Mayanist, she brought a few of her students here and there. What but not we, to this scale, though. No, no. We no one has even to this day. There, there's not really another program quite like this. As far as wanting to do those things, I don't know. I often laugh about it, but I'm not sure it's not the truth that I I think sometimes I'm just not smart enough to think three things through. <laughs> and I just when I want to do something, I oh, sort of just funny. just do it, you know? I I justify it and yeah. I think people either pity me or are sympathetic and just help me along. I mean, you can look at everything we've ever done and without the gracious uh, generosity of of others, it, they would never happen. But yeah. they, for some reason, do. The next question I have is just around the evolution of the program. So you came to Davidson Day, you were going to Belize, and you just mentioned before that now there's four sites that Davidson Day is involved in. So how did that happen? It, it's sort of like a snowball effect. We ran the Belize project for a long time. It was actually that article, that Archaeology Magazine article. A good friend of mine now, I didn't know him then, Uh, reached out and said, hey, he was actually in Spain, and he said, hey, I don't know, how are you doing this? He's like, I've tried to get some momentum on getting students, and he said, what's your secret? What's?" And I I sort of just said, I don't know what to tell you, but why don't you come check it out? And he actually flew to Belize, I think, that next summer, and um, he was there for a week, I think, and he said, is there any way you would consider doing this in Spain? <laughs> and at the time, I'd never even considered it. I mean, I my focus has always been the Maya. Know nothing really beyond basic history about Spain or old world archaeology. But yeah, he convinced me to uh, go over and look at some sites. I think he he toured us around, I think, about 12 sites. And he said they were Roman, Celtiberian, you know, all these great sites yeah, at the end of the trip, he said, what do you want to do? And I said, can we do that medieval castle that we sort of did a tour of after the Visigothic city? And he goes, he's just like, that's not even old. Why do you want to do that? You know, he was just shocked. But it was just such an idyllic place. And, And to me, it was so exciting. We built that program from scratch here. And a few years later, 
we actually got the fever of some new projects and we wrote letters. Greece has always been a place. I mean, it's a, uh, for archeologists, it's amazing. Greece and Egypt are, are one of the spots everybody dreams of. And we wrote letters uh, with my partner, Catalina, to all of the different leaders in Greece and said, you know, this is what we're looking to do. We got three responses and we opted for the site where Aristotle taught Alexander the Great. And to have that choice was, it was only because of our track record with the first two projects. And then after that, we actually started receiving requests and people wanted us to work on their sites. Because, you know, we've always designed our, our projects to bring value, not to just sort of leech off and take from. We always bring a lot to the table in addition to just the, the manpower. We bring a lot of financial assistance with hotels, food, hiring workers. So it's stuff that a lot of these countries find helpful. We've built our operation around the idea of we want to come in to be beneficial not to just be takers. And what do you mean by those two things? I mean, I think I have an idea of what you mean between contributing and just taking, but how does that play out in sort of archaeological circles? Well, it's a pretty common misconception that everything's been done. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people are just like, oh, wow, there's still stuff to dig up. Reality is, I mean, when you have a site that where Aristotle taught Alexander the Great and it hasn't been excavated since 1954. Wow. There's a reason. And there, there's a lack of resources. But just using that as an example, obviously we want to be involved in that because it's history. I mean, it's, it's really, yeah. there are things there that will rewrite history. I mean, we've only worked there three seasons, so we barely scratched the surface, uh, no pun intended. <laughs> um, but, you know, when we go there, they are really happy we're there. I mean, we hire probably about 16 full-time archaeologists for a month, and their economy doesn't allow that just for a random site. The hotel, we book the hotel for a month. We always laugh that there's a little snack shop in Spain, and they're only open while we're there because <laughs> they go on vacation the rest, the rest of the year. year. <laughs> but it, it sort of brings that. But we try to bring more than just money. You know, we, we try to bring some life and energy and we love our students interact with the communities. And so I love that we are sort of beyond the velvet rope, mm -hmm. whereas a lot of programs, there's nothing wrong with them, but you're behind the velvet rope. You're looking at museums, you're looking at things. It's almost like they're a zoo. They're mm -hmm. a zoo. We interact. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think people love that. I, I think that our students represent us very well when they travel. I'm very proud of that. And the work we do, I'm really proud of. I feel like we've always sort of been under a small microscope. I don't think people are looking for us to mess up. But at the same time, there are probably those who are thinking, oh, these guys probably aren't cut out for that. But we deliver. And I'm proud of how we do. And we, we can do that because we surround ourselves with a lot of professionals. And how did the Portugal site come about? Portugal, it's sort of funny. Again, it was collaborating with Catalina Urquijo, who is uh, the, one of the Spanish archaeologists. Uh, it was just actually her interactions with another field director at the site of Troya. And, uh, and Troya, sorry, that is... Troya is in Portugal. Okay. And she had spoken to her. The director's name is Inez Vaz Pinto. And she and Inez were talking and... Uh, sort of said, hey, Afar would love to do some stuff. And she said, let's try it. Now, three years later, 
things are really jamming. All of our projects are sort of long term. <laughs> I don't I don't do a project just to do a one off. Yeah. Typically, I'm looking at some longitudinal research. But each summer, I mean, I'm using trends recently. I will start in Spain. So once school lets out, I I almost, because of the timing, I almost have to leave right after graduation. So I'll graduation starts or happens on a Thursday. I'll fly on Saturday. So typically we will go Spain and then we'll go Portugal. And then we have to do Portugal before July because July is super busy tourist season. Uh, And then we'll go to Greece. Then I'll fly home for a day or two, and then we'll fly to Belize. And that typically when we fly home from Belize, I have about two days before teacher work week. And if you're a student, what, how old do you have to be to be able to go? The earliest you can participate is the summer after your seventh grade year, mm-hmm. and that's the Spain program. So seventh and eighth graders, that's the one program they can apply for. And the reason is it's just really, it's out in the countryside. It is a little village. But it's the most secure place, and we feel really comfortable with the group. It's also it's construction for the most part. And this is a medieval castle, but it's built well, and essentially it's it's bigger moving. Like some of some of our sites, for example, if it's a tomb or a burial, it's really sensitive stuff, and, and you need practice to do <laughs> those things. So uh, Spain is really pretty safe to make sure they aren't going to mess some things up. Uh, and then once they hit ninth grade, the summer after their ninth grade year, they can do Belize. Typically, we try to wait until after their sophomore or junior year to do the uh, Greece and Portugal. It's just a, Portugal is very technical. It's a very technical project. And Greece, we have a lot of burials every year. So the kids need a little bit more training, I would say. It just sounds like such a remarkable experience for a young person to suddenly find themselves in a different part of the world and also sort of doing really meaningful work in terms of uncovering history. So what's it? So you have kids who, you know, have an interest, they go for the first time. I imagine you see a lot of transformation. Just what's that like to seeing the kids grow? And they go for about two weeks per time? Two weeks per session, yeah. And typically the return rate, if a kid goes one year, I think we we figured up statistically it was over 80% will return Mm -hmm. for a second project. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that the most successful and the least successful student in a class can have success and, and growth from. And I think it's an outlet that they can put their hard work and studying into use and holding something that hasn't been seen for a thousand years. Yeah. There's, there's really, there's a lot of power in that. And it's just very satisfying. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's a bone or if it's like nothing, like it's like waste that mm-hmm. somebody used. Yeah, no, I I see tons of growth in the kids. I think it's a confidence builder. Like, it's hard to match because I think they they get how important it is. It's bigger than their class. It's bigger than even Davidson Day. It's it's global impact. Over your time, what have been some of the more sort of heart stopping moments that things you've found? I've devoted almost 20 years of my life to this site, the site of Cahal Petch. And the work that we've done there, I mean, we've actually been a part of the excavation and conservation of probably at least a third of the monumental architecture. Like in 2011, 
it was a significant find. We there were two burials found in the tallest pyramid on the site, and not only did we find th- these individuals with over seventy pieces of jade jewelry. The most exciting thing was we found the first intact hafted conch shell, which actually still had the paint from the Maya, and they had used it as an ink pot, which is actually the logo for Afar. But also we found two bone rings that actually had hieroglyphic inscriptions that gave the title and name of the king of Calpech, which we had never had any logograms or anything that had explained that. So, I mean, that was a big, big impact. I mean, it's not the most important, like there have been things like finding a transitional staircase between two plazas there. That to me was a bigger deal because that's where the common people would have walked. We actually knew how they got from point mm-hmm. A to point B and that those were used by th- thousands of people that burial was probably like six people had were privy to that. Like some of those things that we had no idea until we excavated those stairs. Those are the things that give me chills. Like I, I love really figuring out how things work. We'll have to do a part two. And but what's that moment like where is it a moment or you sort of think if you uncover something, you think, oh, there might be something here. I mean, I'm sure there's it's incredibly varied, but we just say the stair situation. Do you sort of uncover a corner and then go, oh, this might lead to something, and then you sort of keep going and then eventually you go, wow. Yeah, I mean, one of, one of the practices we always do is we go from the known to the unknown. Mm-hmm. So if you would, for example, find a corner, we would chase it then to the unknown. That sounds so much fun. I mean, it's... I can't wait to go in the future to one of the sites and we've already been talking another time about which one, but it would be good to go to. I've never been to Central America and that'd be awesome. But is the, like Elise, my little one, she's four, she loves dinosaurs and everything. And we went to, this is like the closest I've got, right? Which mine might be more sophisticated. It was at the Children's Museum in Chicago and they had all these dinosaurs buried and they had sort of these sort of like old tires painted at the top and were there with little brushes brushing it. And then you'd find like a bone and then you'd follow it. And it was so exciting. Like the two of us were so into it. And that was like an afternoon to remember just the two of us. I can't imagine doing what you're doing. It just sounds, it sounds awesome. Yeah. I typically don't do things I don't love. Yeah. And I really love it. You're very lucky. Yeah. The Afar website states, Afar bridges the academic and non-academic worlds and works to educate and engage the youngest elementary students to intellectually curious citizens. How do you bridge the academic and non-academic worlds? Well, one of the things that I recognized, and I think a lot of people do, and it's actually a bigger movement now, is archaeology is one of those sciences that they cater to themselves hmm. or they have and there's a, it's very different now the the atmosphere is very different a lot of people have put a lot of energy into outreach and education yeah for the longest time you know you would have academic journals and then you would have national geographic hmm. and there's a big difference between those and you know one of the things that we typically serve or we it's not that we don't serve academics because like the mayanist is really more a journal for academics mm-hmm. but there are definitely lay folk who aren't archaeologists who can enjoy it. 
But what we've tried to do is actually bridge that gap to actually make modern current research available mm-hmm. and digestible to different populations. But, you know, oftentimes, like, for example, the Discovery Channel, everybody will be like, hey, did you see that? Did you see that? And I'm like, yeah, two years ago. <laughs> because it takes that long to get to the point where the public sees it. And we don't do that. Like, you know, for example, the Mayanist, we just released the third issue this week. Mm-hmm. And that was research that was done or, or written three months ago. Mm-hmm. So wow. it's fresh. And that's what we're our goal is. Uh, there is a definitely a hungry audience who are not professional archaeologists. Thank God they aren't, because they actually have enthusiasm and resources that, like, if you asked me to fund a project, yeah. I'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> but these guys chose different paths, but still have an interest in it, yeah. right? So marrying those or getting those two together has only been a positive. Mm-hmm. You know, we have folks who can be involved in a real tangible way. But I always call it like National Geographic Live, like Sesame Street Live used to be this thing. You would see Sesame Street and then they'd come into your town and like skate around or whatever. <laughs> like I'm bringing archaeologists into your town. Yeah. And it's sort of funny. Like our school has hosted literally the greatest minds in Maya research and no one knows. Nobody, nobody understands if you are a Mayanist or like is someone in that field, they just scratch their heads like, how do you get all of these people? Do you even realize who's <laughs> here? And it brings people from all over. Like our attendees, for example, these folks come from all over the world and they'll fly to Davidson to listen to these guys speak. It's just really neat. Beginning in 2007, you have hosted the Meyer at the Playa Conference. And in 2011, you started the Meyer at the Lago Conference. How are these conferences different to other archaeology conferences? Well, first, what are they? Okay, so they're four, typically four-day events, and they will typically run from a Thursday through a Sunday. And essentially what we do is we put together a lineup of scholars or artists. It doesn't have to be just archaeologists, but the theme is, is Maya or at least Mesoamerica, mm-hmm. like Central America, scholars and artists. And what we do is we actually have our students, like Davidson Day students, participate. Oftentimes, they present as well alongside these professors. And then enthusiastic members of the community will pay tickets, pay for tickets, come in and actually interact and watch. These guys are considered sort of the heroes to these Mm. these folks. And it's a great way for them to have interaction. They get the current research in, I always ask my, my scholars to sort of present it in a way that a college freshman would understand mm-hmm. it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Not, I don't want to say dumb it down. There's a science to yeah, actually approaching, and they really do a good job of that. And there's a very big social piece to that. Folks, you know, yeah. they, they call them like the Maya deadheads mm-hmm. uh, because these folks, a lot of lot of retired folks who just are super enthusiastic, mm-hmm. they love the the companionship, camaraderie. But yeah, the Maya the Playa was founded first. Mm-hmm. And it was really just a way to, for me to get professors into the, my classroom. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to bring them in. And public schools had money to burn mm. at the time. And we spent way too much money on it and lost all of it, but it was a really great event. It really picked up steam. We picked up attendance. It Within three years was the largest Maya conference in the world. It's wild. And when I took the job here, Bonnie Cotter said, 
I want you to do that up here. Mm. And I said, you know what? I am totally down with doing that, but I don't want to abandon this yeah. because I had so many folks from Miami, the Florida area. I, I didn't want to just pull yeah. the plug. And it would have been turning my back on a lot of the folks who attended that. And I said, I'm happy to do that, but I'll do both, which was crazy. But then we started that. So my at the Lago is a spring conference. My at the Playa is a fall conference. So in fact, the 14th annual My at the Playa will be in just a few weeks. And it's going to be a completely unbelievable lineup, but it's remote. Uh, yeah. So we'll be doing it via a Zoom. That's a, the amount of things that you've started from scratch. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing. And then you obviously don't have enough on your plate. As a result, you launched an open access and peer-reviewed journal called The Mayanist. Why did you start the journal? It's <laughs> a great question. <laughs> I've been working with, a lot with Maxime Lamoureux St. Hilar, who is a professor of archaeology at Davidson College. We're very good friends. I, I met him when he was an undergrad student at Maya at the Playa, <laughs> in fact. He, he came as an attendee. And I've sort of watched him grow up. And now he's a professor down the street so at cool. Davidson College. But we, we've been working together on a lot of stuff, the conferences. And we just sort of said, you know, there's a need for this. And we sort of took what was out there. I mean, there are a few Maya journals. And we sort of said, these are the things we like. These are some ways we think we can make it better. Mm -hmm. And we just said, let's, let's see what it's like. And we had access to amazing scholars and folks sort of trusted us enough to let us try with the first issue and the first issue there were like 8000 downloads wow i mean it was it was unreal and people just sort of got excited we we tried to make it a little bit more approachable to mm -hmm. different groups we teamed up with young artists mm -hmm. and we wanted to make it a visually appealing because some of the journals no offense to the journal itself. It's just how it was done. Very black and white photo, yeah. very basic. We wanted to bring some pizzazz and some some really beautiful artwork to it. So we've worked with young artists and made what I definitely think are the most beautiful journals. But it's it's also super quick turnaround. We're actually, the next thing that we're working with, and we're hoping to get some funding from Davidson College, is we're trying to make all of these be able to produce a Spanish language oh, edition wow. as well. Because so much of yeah. the community is Spanish speaking. So with this third issue, we have two being uh, translated right now. And mm -hmm. the other two articles, we're, we're working to get someone to do that. And you just brought in when we came to sort of record this is, are these chapters for a book you're writing? Yes. Well, yes. Yeah, so it's more editing, even though I'm, I'm writing some of it. One part of the conference was a section called Tales from the Field, and mm. it was essentially non-academic talks led by the scholars, and it was a really huge success, mm -hmm. and the attendees at the conference loved it because it was just, you know, talking about encounters with wildlife yeah. or sort of the Indiana Jonesy type yeah. moments, which actually happened. <laughs> and, you know, so I had people say, you know what, we ought to write a book. We ought to do a book about this. There's so many great stories. So a good friend of mine, George Stewart, who is now passed, I'm sorry. Was, uh, he was with Smithsonian mm -hmm. for a, a long time. He helped a lot with developing My at the Lago here because he was living in North Carolina. George and I really got serious about it right before he passed. And this was nine years ago. Like, this has been in the works a long mm -hmm. time. 
And George and I reached out to some scholars, and we had we collected about 14 stories mm-hmm. that we went ahead and edited. And over the quarantine, I sort of said, it's been 10 years, and we have not finished this book. Mm-hmm. And I said, we already have so many. I reached out to the community, and George's son, David, is literally probably the biggest name in our field right now. He's a professor at University of Texas. And I reached out to David, and I said, and his sister, Anne, and I said, I really want to get this out. We have so much great stuff. So they helped. We now have 36 stories. I'm only on one of the stories. I will, of course, edit and be the writing the intros, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I think we have 34 stories. I did hire an artist, really great artist out of Barcelona, mm-hmm. who you can see a yep. lot of the artwork there. The styling is uh, lighthearted. Yep. Uh, it looks like a Mad Magazine <laughs> yes. style. You know, it's sort of like the the human side. Yeah. And I think it's something that will be, be appealing to readers. We've had a lot of interest from a few publishers already. So, But we hope to actually have that out by the first of the year. That's amazing. It's a great way to honor your friend too. George, was yeah. his name? Yeah, yeah what a great George. way to do that. A few more questions before we move into sort of our rapid fire section is, do you have to be a student at Davidson Day to go on one of these trips? That's a very complicated question. Okay. Davidson Day students are always going to be have the priority. A Davidson Day student, although it has happened a few times, typically that's not the career path that these guys choose. Mm-hmm. We do have a lot of folks who do want to, they, they know in advance that's what they want to do, and they'll reach out. And those kids usually come from all over the country. Okay. And if a student reaches out to me, says, listen, I'm applying to, like my last girl, she was just like, I'm applying to the University of Chicago. I want to do archaeology. This is definitely what I want to do. She's very specific. We took care of that. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? Come work with us. She worked with the Davidson Day students. So that, that happens. Mm-hmm. Typically, we don't have a lot of kids locally outside of Davidson Day, um, just for the simple fact that we usually fill our sections up. Yeah. Yeah, it just seems like such a, now as a new parent here, it just feels like an unbelievable perk. I mean, I know I'd have to pay for it, but like that my kid would get to have an option to go on these sort of overseas trips and just not only the the learning that'll take place, but I imagine the connections that she'd make with, they would, both kids would make with with their friends would be remarkable. Yeah. I mean, I, I think they're, I mean, obviously I wouldn't take anyone's kid to a spot that was, I didn't feel was perfectly safe. But I think there's a certain discomfort in the unknown. Of course. Right? So these kids going into these foreign countries and, you know, the first night at dinner, they're yeah. like, what are we going to eat? Like, this is, until mm-hmm. I see it, I don't. And I think there's sort of like going through rite of passage. Mm. Like you are, there's certain communities like develop where they bind together. Yeah. And I do, like, it's sort of funny because I always say, we're not a real clicky school. <laughs> I, I love that about Davidson Day. But there are folks that definitely socialize more together than others. But when they get put in that and they're working with each other side by side, it really does connect them on a different level. Yeah, uh, it's probably a lot like sports. You yeah, know? And, and they're just really powerful memories. Yeah, I mean, I'll never forget the first year I went to Belize, and that really rewrote my life. And I'm not sure that's happening with these kids, but it definitely is. It's an impact, and I know I feel really confident 
that what we're offering the kids is far beyond anything like a travel abroad yeah. or even a study abroad, yeah. you know, which is super valuable. What do you most like about working with high school students? That's a great question. And I think I just like the level of growth that I get to see mm-hmm. and experience. And, you know, the like the friendships and the relationships that you have, and, and I always say it's unfair. Mm-hmm. You know, I have really great relationships with the students, and the classroom is a, is a great way to build those. But I'm really close to our alumni. Like, I keep in touch with so many of them because we have those experiences. Yeah. It's not just with the kids, like with each other. You know, being there, seeing them do silly things or messing up, <laughs> and, you know, letting, like, those are really valuable to me. But overall, I, I just love it. It's an age that... I just enjoy. Yeah. I think it's I think it's I'm very lucky to get to work with them. All right, now we're going to move on to our rapid fire questions. What is the book or books you most frequently recommend to others? You're not going to like this answer. The type of book I read I would never recommend to okay. a student. I'm re- typically reading a, a journal or some sort of heavy academic. Uh, it's typically Maya mm-hmm. because there's so much of it. There's still so much. What are some things you love to do in your free time besides reading Maya journals? I mean, it, almost everything would revolve around my family. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty much family time. I love, it doesn't matter what we do. I do love to hike. I love to travel. I typically don't have a lot of special time outside of work that I get to travel. You know, I love music. I'm a big music guy, yeah. so I collect vinyl records. Yeah, I like to dabble in a lot of stuff. I don't really care for TV that much. Mm-hmm. But movies, I, I miss going to the movies. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love sitting in a theater. Our town, I just want to see if they'll let me come in by myself and watch <laughs> things. But, yeah, no, I like a lot of stuff. And if you could learn a new skill, what would it be and why? Oh, it would probably be, like, right now, the skill I really want to have is in design <laughs> because there are so many, right now, working with the book, Working with the journal, I'm sort of picking it up. I would love to have like formal education. And I'm not really a great, I know, like I fix my dishwasher and my laundry appliances through YouTube. Mm-hmm. I can't do computer stuff mm. using those. Like for whatever reason, I, I, I don't know if it's an intention thing, but I'd love to have some formal training on that. So yeah, definitely in design. Aside from that, more languages. Mm-hmm. How many do you I, I speak? I feel bad. Really, one. Mm-hmm. Spanish, I do, but Which it's one? bad. English. Well, it's more like American, yeah. but it's... Like... <laughs> yeah. The Spanish, I can get by. Okay. But yeah, I mean, I'm embarrassed. Mm-hmm. I work in these places, and some I, I've worked a long time, and I, I really haven't made too much of a dent. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? I would say probably allowing people to help me. Mm. It's been a challenge for sure. Most people will laugh when I say this, but I'm really a perfectionist and like it's hard for me to let go mm-hmm. of uh, certain things. And probably really in the last five or six years, 
I've allowed myself to, I, I don't think I can physically do everything I'm involved in without help. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of forced my hand a bit, but it's been very helpful and I've gotten better at it and allowed people to sort of have input, mm-hmm. <laughs> which has been great. And one of the people that you know, I've already discussed was Max at Davidson mm-hmm. College. He sort of helped me through that in a lot of ways because I've found someone that I completely trust. Mm-hmm. Like he's going to make great decisions, but you know, lots of people. That's been rewarding, but also sort of liberating in some ways. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? And I'm interested in really two parts of that is one is just you have such a unique path. And so just, you know, your path through archaeology, like following that, but also what advice do you have for people forging their own path, which you've done? Well, University of Kentucky, uh, my alma mater for the last few years, the department chair has asked me to come speak to the senior senior seminar course. Mm -hmm. And really the, the goal of that was to sort of, sort of send the message of, you know, there are other options. There Mm. are, you know, if you want to do it, you can find it. And and I really, I'm proof of that. I mean, for sure, because I was the least likely to succeed. Mm -hmm. In my department, they would have laughed if you said I started a nonprofit. But I think it's powerful, you know? I think it's, you know, it it really boils down to determination. Mm -hmm. And if you really want to do it, you know, it's easy for me to say because I have, I am very happy and I, I'm doing what I love. But I think if you're determined and willing to work hard mm-hmm. and also go broke and, yeah. you know, you, there, there are steps to do those things. But I really, I would definitely encourage people to go after things that really make them happy. Final question. What inspires you? I, I'll probably go back to my family. It's my number one motivator. Mm-hmm. I think seeing my family, that really inspires me. Mm-hmm. And then my kids do. My kids are like, I just imagine what the possibilities of my kids are having this, mm. having Davidson Day, having this community, having teachers who really care. It motivates me beyond anything else, I think. I still carry a lot of inspiration from my friend Doug, uh, who uh, we went to Belize together. We were at University mm-hmm. of Kentucky together. He passed away. I'm so sorry. Very young, yeah. very young, very unexpected. And at that point, I got really motivated work-wise. I, before that, I was pretty unmotivated. Mm. I'm going to be honest with you. But I thought, you know what? I need to take advantage of this. Time's precious. I got to get to work. And it, literally from that point on, I've taken on as much as I can. Mm-hmm. I do as much as I can. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day. The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at davidsonday.org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org.